Inside the Adventure, episode number 71, with Colin O'Brady. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Colin O'Brady, a two-time world record holder for the fastest completion of the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits. Raised in Portland, Oregon, Colin spent his childhood exploring the mountains of the Pacific Northwest and cultivated a passion for adventure in the outdoors. As a prolific athlete, Colin was recruited to swim at Yale and graduated with a bachelor's in economics in 2006. After college graduation, Colin took a backpack and a surfboard and set out to explore the world. However, while in Thailand, Colin suffered a tragic accident and was severely burned in a fire with injuries that covered nearly 25% of his body, primarily his legs and feet, with doctors saying he may never walk normally again. But with the encouragement of his mother, Colin was determined to beat the odds and set himself a seemingly impossible goal, to not just reach full recovery, but to complete his first triathlon. A mere 18 months after his accident, and after extensive rehabilitation, Colin not only completed his first race, but he placed first overall in the Chicago Triathlon. After winning his first race, sponsors took note and signed on to support his future. Colin went on to become a professional triathlete and raced in 25 countries on six continents, representing the United States in international triathlon competitions. It turns out that six years of professional triathlon racing was the exact preparation Colin needed when he and his fiancée Jenna came up with their next audacious plan, an attempt to shatter the speed record of the most prestigious mountaineering challenge in the world, the Explorer's Grand Slam. Without the resources to personally fund the expedition, Jenna and Colin spent 18 months raising the money and support they needed to make this a success. On May 27, 2016, Colin conquered the Explorer's Grand Slam in a record-shattering 139 days, summiting the tallest peak on each of the seven continents, including Mount Everest, as well as skiing to both the North and South Poles. But Colin and Jenna didn't just do this for themselves. They established a nonprofit beyond 7-2 before Colin set out to break the Grand Slam world record, all in an effort to raise awareness and funds to inspire kids and their communities to lead active, healthy lives and pursue their biggest dreams. Colin's efforts have impacted hundreds of thousands of children across the country since launching Beyond 7-2, and this is Colin's story. So I'm from Portland, Oregon, originally. Uh, I'm actually born in Olympia, Washington on a hippie commune, um, but moved to Portland when I was nine months old, so I consider myself a Portland native. Um, come from a, a big blended family, actually. I've got five older sisters um, and uh, an older brother as well, so big family, youngest. Um, yeah, great place to grow up in the Pacific Northwest with the outdoor environment, with the mountains and the ocean and all that so nearby. Um, and my dad uh, was an Eagle Scout, actually. So uh, we didn't have a lot of money uh, growing up. We didn't like travel internationally or stuff like that. But there's so much to explore in the Pacific Northwest. So vacations or weekends for us usually looked like, you know, driving 15, 20 minutes or an hour outside of Portland and exploring a trail or going hiking, backpacking, swimming in a lake or something like that. So I really had a passion for the outdoors from a young age. With your dad being an Eagle Scout, did you get a lot of those same skills from your just experience on those adventures with him? Yeah, you know, I never, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't do Boy Scouts or anything like that specifically, but he's a great outdoorsman and just loved taking us out. So for sure, so many of my early memories uh, in the outdoors are with my dad, him just kind of showing me how to pack pack and how to, you know, catch a fish and cook a fish on a campfire and, and things like that certainly are stuck in my mind. And then as I got older, you know, I did some more like more formal outdoor education and things like that um, with doing a Knowles course and things like that. But really the introduction to the outdoors is definitely uh, from my dad, my mom as well, but really my dad. Um, was a key influence there. What were some of those most memorable first experiences that you had together as a family? 
You know, I remember um, mostly I remember just going to campgrounds and trailheads in Oregon, I guess, um, you know, up in Mount Hood. There's some beautiful Alpine lakes up there. I mean, even like a, there's a time I remember being like four or five years old, so pretty young. Um, and, you know, what seemed like a long backpack, but I imagine it probably wasn't more than a mile or two, but it seemed like, you know, a million miles away from the car. Uh, I remember going to this place called Wadham Lake and picking uh, wild huckleberries we have out in the Pacific Northwest, kind of like blueberries up in the Alpine region. So picking those, making you know, blueberry pancakes on an open uh, fire and a campfire. And uh, I also remember, because I'm from the Pacific Northwest, I remember getting rained on a lot, even in the summertime. So uh, camping in some rainy environments where my dad's like, this is fun, right? And we were like, no, take us back to the car. <laughs> so um, those are some of my first uh, memories. But of course, it grew a deep passion and love for the outdoors, uh, as I've seen through the, the trends of my life. Yeah, did with all those experiences, did that impact kind of uh, what you decided to do growing up and kind of what was your your mindset with uh, as you got older, what you thought you wanted to get into and what you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, I certainly, you know, whether it was the outdoors, certainly being active was a huge part of my life. You know, I really identified myself as an athlete from a young age. You know, my biggest sports growing up were swimming and soccer. Um, so, you know, I swam, uh, you know, won several state championships in both swimming and soccer, was recruited different division one in both and ultimately, um, swam at Yale, um, which was, uh, you know, a great opportunity. So really thinking of myself as an athlete, you know, first and foremost, but I think that that, you know, ties into, you know, learning how to ski when I was a kid and being outside and active just wanted to move my body more than anything um and so that was that was yeah definitely a huge part of my identity as a kid and obviously throughout my entire life now yeah when when you were swimming in high school doing super well you know getting recruited to go to places like Yale to to swim and and play soccer what was your your mindset of what you wanted to do with the sport was it something you wanted to pursue professionally and kind of what were your thoughts back you know I think I always had a dream of being a professional athlete I remember being actually seven years old which you know I'm I'm 33 now so this is 1992 watching the Barcelona Olympics I remember watching a swimmer by the name of Pablo Morales American swimmer a butterflyer you know win the Olympic gold in Barcelona and I remember just thinking, you know, that's, you know, that's what I want to be. I want to be an Olympian, a world champion, a professional athlete. I remember also watching, uh, you know, Michael Jordan and the dream team play basketball. I, you know, actually had the opportunity to meet and have dinner with Michael Jordan this year, which was, uh, the six year old boy inside of me that remembers watching the dream team play basketball in 91 was pretty impressed, uh, for sure. Uh, as was my 33 year old self, but no, you know, having that dream of whatever that was professional sport, um, was, was a dream of mine. Um, and something I always hoped to realize, but also as I went through college and was a collegiate swimmer and was doing really well it was also you know there's not an obvious pathway unless you're playing you know basketball or football or something like that for some of these other sports that I was more um you know better at and spent more time doing yeah so what was your your dream athletically and and kind of what was the trajectory that ended up happening when when you uh were competing at that collegiate level you know, I, I did well as a collegiate athlete. Um, you know, one break that I took, which actually kind of links to the outdoors, is after my sophomore year of college. You know, I loved Yale. It was an amazing experience. But I was a public school kid coming from Portland, Oregon. You know, to show up on this Ivy League campus in Connecticut was a big culture shock for me. So as much as I loved it, there was also a piece of me that was like, whoa, like I don't belong here. You know, a little bit fish out of water at times. Um, and so after my sophomore year, I decided, you know what, I need a break from this. And so I actually un unenrolled and took a semester off and did a Knowles semester. So for those who don't familiar with that, probably a lot of your audience are familiar with that, but National Outdoor Leadership School. So I did a semester in Patagonia, um, sea kayaking and mountaineering when I was 19. And that was just a perfect break in the middle of this, um, you know, education that I was getting to kind of just do something different. You know, I think I learned a ton, maybe not in a traditional academic setting, um, but just learned a lot about myself and leadership and certainly, you know, instilled my passion for the outdoors. So as I related to sports as a collegiate athlete, it was like, I love swimming, obviously taking that semester off you know I, I didn't swim that semester but the rest of the time I swam the whole time but as most division ath one athletes encounter even in you know basketball or football or whatever it's very few of those that take that leap from there even when you're a nationally ranked athlete to being a professional athlete so the dream was always there but when I graduated I was young for my grade so I just turned 21 when I graduated from college and I was kind of like okay like I don't see an obvious path to keep doing that you know the Olympics was always a dream but I was you know probably just a, a hair below having that be a reality for myself. And so it kind of was like, Oh, I guess this is over, you know? Um, and so I, um, 
you know, the, the next chapter of my story is just kind of, you know, like I said, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I always dreamed of traveling the world, but didn't have a lot of opportunity to do that when I was a young kid. And so I had painted houses every summer um, when I was a kid. And I uh, saved up thinking, you know, when I graduate from college, I'm probably going to work in finance at some point. I was an you know, economics major. But before I do that, I want to take, you know, a trip around the world. And so I kind of took my life savings, which amounted to about $10,000 at the time, um, and said, you know, I'm going to go travel as long as I can. I was hoping I could travel for a year on that point. So I kind of took a backpack and a surfboard and set off into the world for an adventure um, to, to, to see the world and spread my wings before settling into a traditional career. That's awesome. You know, so many people uh, say that they're going to do that and just life happens, gets in the way and people get a job. And, and for whatever reason, people don't do that. What gave you the motivation and kind of the confidence and the courage to say, I'm going to make this into reality. I'm going to make it happen. You know, I think it's one of those things that was stuck in my mind from a very young age. So I can't remember the exact moment, but I think I identified with having an adventure like that. Probably I can imagine, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old being like, I'm going to travel one day. I'm going to backpack around the world. Um, um, and like I said, I kind of set this goal as a kid. I was 15, 16 years old painting house in the summer. And that was like my pocket money when I was in, in college. But I would be like, okay, I'm going to put away even, you know, $500 this year or $1,000 this year. And kind of kept it in savings account with that idea in mind. So when a lot of my friends, um, when I graduated from college, this is 2006 pre, you know, credit crisis, kind of high times on Wall Street. Um, most of my collegiate classmates were, you know, taking the jobs with the Goldman Sachs and the, the Lehman Brothers, and, you know, the banks and the banks don't even exist anymore um and for whatever reason because i had just said it out loud i had fixed that goal in my mind i was like maybe that's going to be there maybe i'll do that at some point but i'm taking this trip first and there was like a, a several times i remember buddies of mine signing signing bonuses and things like that you know getting offered you know six figure jobs when they're 22 years old out of college which you know is a ton of money regardless of how old you are um and saying yeah i'm, I'm gonna do this and i was like no i'm gonna go travel like, and I was just, I was just set on that. Um, what was their reaction when, when you said that? People thought I was crazy. I mean, people thought I was crazy. People were like, you have this opportunity to be at this prestigious university and, you know, the best quote unquote best jobs in the world are coming to recruit us to have, you know, to have these roles. Um, why would you not take that opportunity? And I was like, I want to see the world. And I'm so glad that I did that. Again, I think that there's so much to be learned in the classroom, but I also think there's so much to be learned when you actually go out, experience something, get your hands dirty, make mistakes, you know, find yourself in a bus station in a country where no one speaks the same language you in the middle of the night with nowhere to sleep. Like you learn something about yourself. And ultimately, um, you know, a huge tragedy happened to me on that trip as well. You know, I was, um, you know, several months into that journey, I found myself in rural Thailand on a small island in the Gulf of Thailand. And I foolishly was jumping a flaming jump rope, you know, because it's a 22 years old, that seemed like a great is that idea. A thing they do in Thailand? That is a thing they do in Thailand. It's not something I like made up, you know, fire dancing is somewhat common over there. Um, and usually, you know, the rope bumps you, it's kind of like your finger through a candle flame, you know, it just bounces off you and you're fine. But I wasn't so lucky. The rope wrapped around my legs, lit my body completely on fire to my neck and uh you know i jumped in the ocean a few steps away which ultimately saved my life but not before 25 percent of my body was severely burned predominantly my legs and feet and um yeah it was a terrible terrible scary moment for me obviously um you know rushed to a hospital but no ambulance it was like a moped ride down a dirt path um one room nursing station where there's a cat running around my bed in the icu where i had to go under eight surgeries and the biggest fear was that the doctors were saying to me at the time hey you're probably never going to be able to walk again normally based on how damaged my legs were um and so i know that you know you saw me give a speech with audio visual you've seen some of the photos you know my legs were, were really badly burned and injured and so the uh it was just a, a terrible moment for me. Um, but, you know, so again, you know, as we'll get on to the rest of my story, something I learned a ton and, and grew from. So I don't I don't regret, you know, this journey at all. There was never a time when I was like, oh, God, what my friends were right. They all took those jobs and I went out and burned myself in a fire. I'm, you know, of course, that in the moment I was pretty uh, sad about about my choices. Yeah. What what was that mindset? What were you feeling in the moment, especially for someone that um, athleticism and the ability to be active and use um, kind of those crucial um, kind of aspects of of kind of the way we do things in order to experience life. What, what was the the thought going through your head that um, that 
kind of came up first when the doctor said that. Yeah, I mean, that was some of the darkest moments of my life, to be perfectly honest. Obviously, the physical trauma was, you know, incredibly intense. Uh, you know, burn accident is certainly one of the most painful injuries you can have. Um, not something I'd ever experienced in terms of that level of pain. And then just being that far away from home, having this language and cultural barrier, you know, being more or less alone. A buddy of mine, David, was traveling with me, but, you know, we were just young kids out in the world um, and things got real very quickly. Um, and then the emotional trauma on top of that, you know, really, you know, I describe it as I was just downward spiraling. I just was like, I want to give up. My life's not going to be the same. I want, you know, and the hero of the story really is my mother um, who came to my bedside and she, you know, I know now, you know, if there's parents out there listening, you can only imagine what it's like to see your kid in this way. Um, and she was full of fear and she was full of doubt, but she really never showed me that fear. I know now that she was kind of crying in the hallways with the doctors pleading for good news. But every single time she came into my hospital room, she just had this smile on her face and this kind of just energy, this air of positivity and saying things to me like, what do you want to do when you get out of here, Colin? You're 22 years old. You got your whole life in front of you. Like life's not over. Like let's dream. Let's talk about the future. Let's set a goal. And my initial response in this dark moment was like, mom, I'm screwed. Like life, you know, what are you talking about? Like stop giving me this fake smile, you know, whatever. But ultimately kind of bought into that positive mindset and that mindset for me really shifted. And I was like, okay, I'll play along. You know, my goal was to one day race a triathlon. I kind of closed my eyes and pictured. I was like, I'm an, I think of myself as an athlete. I want to be an athlete again. And although I had never done triathlon had had something I thought about in the past and I was like you know I've been a swimmer I was like you know that's like what a strong fit healthy person could do is race a triathlon and so I set that as my goal and the second that was fixed in my mind it was really just it was just there similar to saying you know when I was 15 saying one day I'm going to take a trip around the world it's like I was in a hospital bed couldn't walk and I was like I could just see it one day I'm going to race a triathlon I don't know how it could be a year from now it could be 10 years from now but I'm going to do that um, and it was it was very very powerful to have that fixed mindset and that sort of positive mindset shift um, around that how did that mentality affect your ability to get out of that kind of dark mindset that you might have initially had of saying, you know, this, this is it. My life's over. I can't do the things that I love. How did your mom's just positivity and enthusiasm, uh, kind of give you the ability to set that goal and ultimately achieve it? Yeah. I mean, obviously now I've had so much time to reflect on this and I've seen where this, you know, journey has taken me to, you know, world records and, and things of, of those nature. But I, um, you know, at the time I was kind of, I think, putting faith in my mother, um, to kind of, to lead me and guide me or just kind of clinging on to like any sort of hope. But what I see now and what I talk about when I, when I do, you know, public speak in different environments and share this story is what I realize is that as humans, we have these kind of reservoirs of untapped potential inside of us, I believe, and can achieve incredible things. Um, but also as humans, we're all going to face setbacks. For me, it was this burn accident, but like, it doesn't matter who you are. Like you go through hard times, you start in a business, like that's a hard, there's gonna be ups and downs. Like someone in your family is going to get sick or you're going to get sick. Or you're going to have trouble in your relationship. I mean, we all go through these moments of doubt and fear. Um, and, but it's in those moments, we have this ability to kind of shift our mindset or go down the rabbit hole of negativity. And what I've learned is to not say, oh God, my goal is to never face adversity again. My, my, what I've realized now about my mindset is like, I am going to face adversity. That's a guarantee, but I have a choice of how I now react to it. And what I realized through this process is having that fixed goal, having that fixed purpose really made all the difference. So when I flew back home to Portland, Oregon, I was still in a wheelchair, you know, I was carried on and off the plane. When I got back home, I've been in the Thai hospital for three months. And I get back home, I'm in a wheelchair, and a really important moment in my life is my mom, again, says to me, all right, Colin, you keep saying you're going to race a triathlon, you're in a wheelchair. Like, if you want to race a triathlon, you know, again, my hat is off to anyone who races a triathlon who has to be in a wheelchair, people who aren't fully able-bodied that are still out there doing that, but, you know, my goal was to be able to walk again, and she says, you want to do that again, you want to run, you want these things, you got to get out of that wheelchair. And so she placed, you know, uh, a chair from our kitchen table one step in front of my wheelchair, and she said, today you need to figure out how to take one single step somehow some way even if you think those legs don't quite work the same and it was in that moment it took me three hours sitting in the wheelchair just staring at this chair in front of me that I finally worked up the courage to take that first step and that was hugely symbolic for me it might seem totally minor like one step in three hours one step in three months it's ridiculous but that was the beginning of this true recovery I was like if I can take one step maybe tomorrow I can take two if I can take two steps tomorrow I make three and again maybe that's trite maybe that's simple a step at a time we've all heard that over and over again but really living it out in real time 
um, was powerful for me. And so now when I do face adversity, when I do face setbacks, I find that setting a big goal, having a big purpose, a driving kind of North Star is really valuable. But then immediately I zoom back in on, okay, I've got this massive goal out there. What can I do right in front of me? Like, what's the first thing? Can I open my computer and send one email? Can I, you know, read one article about this thing I'm interested in? And that one step leads to the next and next and next. And those thousands of steps ultimately lead to this. And in this case, for me, kind of the end of this chapter in my life um, was, you know, 18 months after I was burned this fire, I did move to Chicago. I finally took a job in finance. I was learning how to walk again and honored this goal by signing up for at a local gym to train for a triathlon. And I ended up racing the Chicago triathlon just 18 months after my injury. Finishing that race was a huge achievement for me. I was like, wow, I did it. Doctors in Thailand told me I'd never walk again 18 months ago. And here I am swimming, biking and running. And then to my complete surprise, um, I hadn't just finished the race, but actually I won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of, you know, more than 4,000 participants on the day, which was completely unexpected. My goal was just to finish the race, um, and to actually win this huge race. My first race ever, um, was, was a crazy experience and kind of shifted my mindset completely on what I've done for the last decade. So this wasn't just any triathlon. This was the Chicago triathlon, like professional people that train their whole lives for triathlons do this race. Yes. When, and you, your goal was to, you know, get from that wheelchair to the, the chair in front of you, take that one step, one step at a day, that chair would get further and further away. And you use those small little goals to achieve this goal of completing a triathlon, but not just completing it. You actually won it. How, how did you feel when you found that out? What was the thing going through your head? So I, I want to make an important distinction, which is I did. I was first overall as an, in the amateur field. So there were some professional athletes in the field who actually raced on a slightly different course and whatever, um, who did beat me that day. But of all the just come all participants of amateurs, I was I was first overall at four thousand two hundred and thirty some people. Um, but yeah, it was the big. It was the biggest Olympic distance race by participation in the United States. Like he says, not just some, you know, local race, which in itself would have been amazing as well. Um, but you know, a couple of things crossed my mind in that moment was, you know, the first thing I thought about, I was like, yeah, this is a great accolade. Wow. I can like pat myself back on. I won this triathlon, but immediately it wasn't about that for me. It was like, wow, there was this butterfly effect. And I realized this moment, I was like, what would have happened looking back in Thailand had my mom not been there? Had my mom not forced me to look towards the future and set this measurable goal? What would have happened? Um, and I was so grateful that she kind of showed me this pathway. But then I was like, wait, I'm not some like superhuman person. I'm not some like extra lucky, just like gifted, incredible person. I was like, I'm just like everyone else. That's how I feel about myself. And I was like, wow. This is a unique power that we all have within us. And I wanted to continue to push my limits beyond that. And also kind of a lot of my mission, what I've done is inspiring other people to have those moments inside of them. And that's not just through sport. Like your canvas could be, again, business, entrepreneurship, love, creativity, art, it doesn't matter. But having that passion, having that purpose, having that drive and to keep pushing towards your goals. And so for me in that moment, the, the immediate thing I did was the most, most obvious thing in my, might seem ridiculous. I walked into my job on Monday and I quit my job. <laughs> um, I quit my finance job and I, um, got my very first tri sponsor in triathlon. A guy by the name of Brian Gelber believed in me, um, and said, Hey, you know, probably not as lucrative of a path as, you know, Wall Street or finance, but, um, I would love to be your first supporter if this is something you want to take seriously. This is a crazy story. And so I turned professional in triathlon, which is, is nothing like being in the NBA or NFL, but I, uh, in, in terms of benefits, uh, financially, but you know, I had enough, enough support to race all over the world. I raced in 25 countries on six different continents, lived all over the world, um, for the next six or seven years. Um, and it really was a, a dream come true. I, I kind of, like I said before in this interview that I thought the door was closed on being a professional athlete. And all of a sudden I had this new rebirth of ability to be a pro athlete, to kind of live my dream, to also travel the world, which was also my dream that got cut short when I got burned. Um, and so kind of all of a sudden I was, I was totally living my dream and it was an incredible, incredible chapter in my life. So what was that chapter in your life like and how did it, uh, kind of relate back to those passions for travel and for athleticism that you had in the beginning? You know, it was really incredible. Um, 
you know, A, to be a professional athlete, you know, before I knew it within the first year, I was training with Olympic gold medalists. I was training with world champions. I was meeting Olympians in other sports and all of a sudden they were my peers. Um, and so for the seven year old kid that was watching, you know, Olympic gold medalists on TV, all of a sudden I'm riding my bike and, you know, there's the Olympic gold medalist in triathlon from two years before. And, you know, here's the Kona Ironman world champion, you know, riding right beside me or swimming right beside me. It was amazing to have those peers all of a sudden. Um, and I learned so much, you know, from that experience, um, both good and bad. You know, what I also learned from being around amazing athletes and amazing, uh, successful athletes like that, I had put athletes, I think on such a high pedestal in my life, uh, previously. And by training in that environment, I was like, Oh, you know what? Like this is even more achievable than I thought it was because these people are human too. Like they put their pants on one leg at a time. Also, you know, they're they're they have good days, bad days and whatnot. And so it kind of gave me that extra layer of seeing behind the veil a little bit. Um, and I apply this again, uh, to, to business and other things as well Is it's easy to see people from afar. It's easy to see celebrity or, or athletic success and seems, you know, unattainable. Um, but the lesson learned was like, Oh, like th- this is achievable. Like this can be done. It's gonna take a ton of hard work, a ton of discipline, all this kind of stuff. But you know, we can get there. So what was the goal for what you'd set in terms of what you want to achieve being that professional triathlon? Uh, yeah, you know, what, what you know, the, the Olympic dream was very much alive for me. Um, you, you know, it's uh, I've had a lot of successes now as an athlete over time, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, the two world records I set and whatnot in the mountains. Um, but the Olympic dream was uh, alive in me from a young age as a, as a kid, as a, as a swimmer, and um, knowing that triathlon was Olympic sport, immediately my mindset was on there. But, um, you know, even after six, seven years of racing professionally, I, uh, you know, did, did fall short of that goal. I haven't achieved every single goal I've ever set in my life. Um, but the goal was, you know, to make the Olympics ultimately, um, and and didn't quite get there, but, you know, had an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, definitely, like I said, racing all over the world with some of the best athletes and the travel element was amazing. You know, um, I've talked to some athletes who actually, uh, peers of mine who regret a little bit that, they just went to these places and they saw a hotel room, a race course, an airplane, an airport, a baggage claim, whatever. And what I realized early on was I want to race in all these places. And my focus was racing and training as best as I could. But I also didn't want to waste this opportunity to adventure, to travel. And that's not to say I did crazy things and big expeditions in the middle of my training. But, you know, for example, I flew to China for a race, a place called Chengdu in the Sichuan province of China. And they're famous for being one of the few places in the world where there's still giant pandas. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to book my flight. So I raced the race in this World Cup. And then I'm going to stay two days later. And I'm going to go see those giant pandas, you know? And... I'm so glad I did those things because there's 25 other examples of that, of random countries that I wouldn't necessarily go to. I mean, Estonia, Latvia, Zimbabwe, um, Kenya, you know, places um, that I got to go to because of racing. But I always made a point of tacking on, even if it was a one or two day adventure, I was like, I'm going to be tired after this race. I don't need to get on the first plane out of here and leave. I want to experience a little bit of this country, a little bit of this culture. And so I think that was, that was a different path than a lot of my other, you know, peers in the sport, um, you know, made and, you know, for better or for worse, I don't know, but I'm certainly glad. Um, because when I look back on this chapter of my life, I love the racing. I love the discipline. I love the races. I won the, the things I learned from losing, um, having failures, crashing my bike, et cetera. But I really love the adventure and the breadth and the depth of the the world travel and experience that that provided me as well. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, so true that it's not just about the destination, but about the journey as well. And that's oftentimes the most important part. Um, it's so clear that uh, not just doing these things, but inspiring others to do them is extremely important to you. What was that kind of next phase and what you wanted to do in terms of doing something that was so truly remarkable that would inspire others to go out and have that same passion for pushing past their own perceived limits? Yeah, you know, after six or seven years of being a professional triathlete, it was such an incredible journey. And I had, you know, some solid sponsorship in place to continue to race for several more years. I was 29 at the time at this kind of pivot point in my life, um, fall of 2014. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, this is amazing. But I feel like in some sense, I feel like I had done this chapter. Um, and there was, again, the peak age for triathlon, particularly in Ironman is, you know, mid thirties, you know, so I had a pathway to keep racing for many, many more years. Um, but I was also like, okay, what are my core values here? It was also around the same time that I was getting engaged and my fiance, now wife, Jenna, um, you know, she really, 
um, has been a big part of my journey as well as, as I'll, I'll share more. And we were kind of just dreaming out, what do we want to do next? What do we care about? What are our core values? I still wanted to be an athlete. I still super identified as being an athlete and pushing my body. But after so many years of racing shoulder to shoulder on the race course, I was like, I don't necessarily need to like line up, race the guy next to me again. But I still want to race myself. I still want to find where my limits are. Um, and so we, we kind of set off this dream. We said, I wonder what it'd be like to try to set a huge world record but with the larger purpose of inspiring other people, giving ourselves a platform essentially to share this story, to start a nonprofit. Um, and so our, what we did, we set this goal to see if I could set the world record for something called the Explorer's Grand Slam, um, which is to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, the seven summits, as well as complete expeditions to both the North and South Pole. Um, fewer than 50 people in history have ever completed the Grand Slam at the time, and I was aiming to be the fastest. So instead of climbing a mountain, coming back home, training for the next expedition, I was going to climb a mountain mountain, fly to the next place, climb the next mountain, fly to the next place. Fly, you know, so we're talking about Mount Everest. We're talking about Kilimanjaro. We're talking about Denali, the North Pole, the South Pole, all in quick succession without taking any breaks in between. And the entire, uh, the idea what Jenna and I built was to basically build a campaign, build a media campaign around this, start a nonprofit to use the media and leverage of this story to shine a light on, you know, a cause that's super important to us, which is kids and kids' health, um, particularly inspiring kids to get outside, move their bodies, live active and healthy lives um, is hugely important to us. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in digital media, a big believer in digital content, um, storytelling, et cetera. But I also think that, you know, as a, as a society and certainly as an up-and-coming generation, we're a little bit too plugged in sometimes. And not to say that to, to vilify technology in any ways, but it's like some of my best memories as a kid is actually putting that, putting that away, not having those options and getting outside, getting my hands dirty, running around. And so the hope was not to inspire kids to go climb Mount Everest themselves, but to just explore in their own backyards, to get outside, have their parents take them to the local park, have them ride their bike to school, things like that, that build a healthy lifestyle. Because I believe at my core that when we are healthier, when we feed ourselves better, when we move our bodies, we are more successful across the board. And that even applies to, you know, academics, that applies to career success, that applies to interpersonal relationships. And I think that I believe, you know, certainly that those those fundamental wellness values are huge. So the entire goal was to set this world record, but having that be like the underlying principle um, and core value really governing all of the media and content that we created around that. One of the cool things that I love about your story is uh, kind of your ability to go from one stage in life where maybe the outlooks uh, don't look uh, super great from, you know, where, where you had that injury and, and you said, you know, I'm not just going to, my goal is not just going to be to walk again, it's going to be to run a triathlon. And then you get into professional triathlon racing and then your goal is something that is so far out of triathlon racing that it's remarkable. Um, obviously, the endurance piece of triathlons are incredibly helpful for mountaineering, but it's a completely different sport with a completely different uh, goal and challenge that professional mountaineers uh, might not even set. How did you come up with this idea to be the first person to summit the seven peaks the fastest that explores Grand, Grand, uh, Grand, Challenge, Grand Slam? Grand Slam, yeah. So yeah, explores Grand, Slam. Grand, Grand Slam. How did that idea and that goal of that record uh, become the one you wanted to focus on? Yeah, you know, I've always um, I've always dreamed of climbing Everest as a kid, so that was a, a piece of that for sure. Um, but, you know, my mother, of course, being such a big part of my story, my recovery, and a huge influence in my life has, has been interviewed, you know, several times in different capacities as, as my story has grown. And um, she always says, careful what you wish for when you tell your kids they can do anything they set their mind to. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she says that tongue-in-cheek because, of course, she worries about me a little bit in the mountains. But, she's, you know, she's very proud to me and has been a huge influence. And I think that, you know, it, it, it is, it is that lesson that I learned in that Thai hospital. It is that lesson I learned of like, when I was surprised the heck out of myself when I won that triathlon, which was like, whoa, like don't play small, like go big. And you know what? Like I wanted to make the Olympics in triathlon. I didn't quite get there, but like in the journey of not quite in getting there, I traveled all over the world and raced my bike and had an amazing career. And you know what? Had I kept racing, who knows? Like I, you know, I stopped two years short of the Rio Olympics. I'm not saying I would have made the Olympics or not, but like, you know, I I'd had a great run in triathlon by having a major goal. And so certainly my goal wasn't to fail in the mountains, but it wasn't to say like, Oh, you know what? Like, you know, I would go out and tell people when I was trying to rally support around this project, I should say that I had no support. You know, this project to pull off was going to cost a half a million dollars. That's just like the cost of doing this. The logistics are incredibly challenging, you know, North Pole, South Pole, Everest, et cetera. 
I didn't have like a dollar to do this with. And I also wasn't a professional mountaineer and I didn't have those kind of sponsors and all this kind of stuff. So when I started telling people I was doing this, people were like, uh, how? Like, and you know, that's not going to work. And it's not that I thrive when someone tells me I can't, but I also don't always listen either. I'm always like, okay, like, yep, I can see that it doesn't seem like a logical path. I mean, I remember going and pitching companies like, hey, this is a great idea, this and this. Like, I've got no social media following at the time. I'm a professional triathlete and this. And they're like, so tell me about the mountains you've climbed. So like, what's your experience climbing in the Himalayas? I'm like, well, I've actually never been to Nepal, um, but I believe I can do this because this. And people are like, wait, what? And in 2014 and 2015, nobody climbed Everest because in 2014, there was a tragic avalanche on Nepal um, that killed 16 Sherpas, unfortunately. Very sad stories. And then in 2015, the earthquake hit Nepal and devastated the entire country. And so in 2015, when I'm trying to build support for this project, not only had no one climbed Everest in two years, people were like, so you've never climbed Everest. You've never been to the Himalayas. No one climbed Everest the last two years and you're telling me you're going to do that and climb six other mountains and go to both poles? Like, people are like, yeah, kid, like, good luck, like, whatever. Um, but, you know, for me, of course, I'm proud of this story, but I'm, I'm proud of the essence of the story, which is, you know, a lot of people are going to say no. A lot of people are going to say you can't. A lot are going to say, oh, dream a little bit smaller. Um, and I've always been a believer of saying, I'm going to keep dreaming big and I'm going to keep putting it out there. And not to say I've had it all figured out. I've made tons of mistakes. I, I got it wrong. I, you know, a hundred doors got slammed in my face before a single one opened. But that process of, of daring to dream greatly is, I think, you know, how beautiful innovations happen. Um, and it's something that I really, you know, try to inspire other people to think about in their own lives, in their own ways. You know, I've had this phrase that I started with, with kids, really, but that's grown into a bit of something I like to share, which is a simple question, but it's, what's your Everest? You know, I started asking kids that question when I was climbing Everest and get amazing answers from kids in, in gymnasiums of classrooms I'd speak into. My Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college or you know my my Everest is to make sure the snow leopards get off the endangered species list you know it's amazing to hear you know kids share their dreams but that dream or that question is pertinent to me now even though I've climbed these mountains like what are my next goals what are my next big things those those are pertinent to anybody out there having a goal not a goal that you know you can accomplish but a goal that seems just out of reach or just too big you might surprise yourself when you really dedicate to that, when all the odd, the chips are stacked against you, but you still get out of bed and you're still going to try. I mean, I got out of bed 300 days in a row when I was building this project with no money, no funding, no support, other than Jenna there going like, okay, let's Google something else again or call some other random person that like such and such introduced us to and see if they want to help us out. Like that was the process. And somehow fast forward to May of 20, you know, two years ago, basically this week, May 27, 2016, I summited Denali, which was the ninth of these expeditions and, and set two world records for the Explorer's Grand Slam and in the process uh, also set the record for the Seven Summits speed record. Um, and uh, again, just like the triathlon, it's a testament to, you know, when you put something out there and you worked hard towards it, you, you really, I think, as humans, again, as I've said before, have incredible capacity to achieve great things, um, even things they, that, that seemed far out of reach when they dreamed them up. What was the most important mindset and kind of mentality you had to have even before you got on the first mountain to push past all those people that said no until the one that said yes? And what did it feel like when you first got that yes that made it possible? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was incredible um, the entire the entire journey of that. You know, I'm a I am a big believer in something I, I continue to learn more and more as I continue to set big goals in my life. Of you know, I believe we're a net product of the ten people we spend the most time around. Um, and maybe not in totality, of course, we, you know, how we grew up or whatever set of circumstances, but really the people you surround yourself with end up rubbing off on you significantly. So it's not to say that I just try to push aside people who tell me I can't, but I really try to embrace those who are willing to love and embrace and support me. Certainly, you know, two strong characters in, in my story have been, you know, both Jenna and her undying and yielding support. You know, this, this success is as much hers as it is mine. This has been her full-time work, her full-time job, running our nonprofit, dreaming about this, figuring out our marketing pitches, all this, writing my speeches. I mean, she has been, you know, she is in this with me as much as, as I'm in it. Um, and of course, my mother, you know, two incredible strong females, but there's been other people in my life, mentors. I mentioned a guy, that guy, Brian Gelber, um, who was my first sponsor in triathlon. You know, he met me right after I won the Chicago triathlon and just looked at me and he was just like, this is amazing. Like, I want to support you in doing this. And when you find those people, when you find those people that are willing to support your dream, 
hold them close, nurture those relationships, cherish that. And not to say just brush aside all the, the doubters or the, the not believers, but there is something powerful in a collective of people that believe in a, in a common vision, even if it is seemed far-fetched. So that support structure is so important in helping you to make something possible and accomplish something. But I imagine it's also just as important to have that support structure when things go wrong as well. Mm. Uh, I, I'm sure that um, throughout all those different peaks you climbed, there were there were some pretty uh, tough hurdles to jump over and probably some situations that uh, were a bit scary to find yourself in. Uh, what were some of those like? How do you push through them? And what was the importance of support and guidance that you kind of described before to get through that? You know, one of the, one of, I, I actually bring up a Brian Gelber story because it just popped into my mind, um, has, cause he's been a great mentor of mine, uh, over time, uh, very successful financial trader. Um, like I said, supported me from, uh, early on in my triathlon career and was, was supportive of this project as well. Um, and early in my triathlon career, he said something to me when I was having a hard time. I was like, you know, I'm not getting there. I'm not making as much progress towards the Olympics as I thought I would and this and that. And he goes, you look at me, Colin, and you see a wealthy, successful financial trader, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, you look how much you've done. He's a self-made guy. You know, he's got a company of three, 400 employees, you know, doing great for himself. Um, doesn't need to work a day in his life, but he's, you know, dedicated to, you know, goes to work every single day because he's just passionate about it. An incredible guy. And he says to me, like, well, you don't think I just like had some, some losses along the way? And he starts telling me a couple of stories about, I remember the day I lost X amount of dollars and I didn't even want to go home because I couldn't face my wife, I couldn't face my kids and stuff like that. And the reason that those stories are powerful for me, and there's a lot of different analogs to that, this just happened to be my mentor and the field that he worked in, is that he gave me permission to fail. He gave me permission to not get it right every single time, to not win every race I ever entered, to not get every marketing pitch with a prospective sponsor for them to write the check when I'm walking out the door. It was more about perseverance and trying again. So your question is really about that support system of having those people that believe in you, that actually believe you can do it, but also those people that when you're scared, that when you're afraid, when things aren't going well, aren't saying like, oh, well, you said you're going to do this, but clearly you're failing. Like maybe you should give up. They're like, you know what? I see you're having a bad day. So up in the mountains that played out, you know, the, with life and death stakes, right? The day I summited Mount Everest, um, unfortunately three people passed away on the mountain that day. And those weren't people I knew or were climbing with. I didn't know about their deaths until afterwards, but it really hammers home, you know, the true stakes of being up there. And, you know, I, 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 my first summit attempt on Everest, this is 130 days into my project. So Everest was the second to last of my nine expeditions. It's the way it worked out in the weather window. First time I went up there, I go up into the death zone. I'm at 26,000 feet at the South Call, you know, very famous, the theater of where, you know, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air book plays out. Um, and all of a sudden a huge storm rolls in 50, 60 mile per hour winds blow in. It becomes very apparent there's no way I'm going for the summit. I'm just going to be lucky to survive the night and climb back down off the mountain rather than going up. And I get back down and very few people, you know, have the energy, have the resources or the support to get back up the mountain. And it was amazing to be able to fall back into that support system, call home to Jenna on the sat phone and be like, what should I do? I'm in a storm on Everest. I've now climbed back down the mountain. Is our project over? And for her to say, you know what? Like, let's find a way go to sleep, rest for a couple days, let's regroup in a couple days. Kind of, again, giving me permission to be like, this is outside of your control. And sure enough, I had the strength to get back up to camp for three days later. But then again, the weather forecast wasn't looking great. And I'm afraid. Now all the self-doubt was going through my mind. I was like, I've seen how bad it can get up here. I've seen what 60 mile per hour winds at 26,000 feet look like. I'm afraid. And so I pick up my satellite phone again and I call home to Jenna and say, Jenna, like, I'm afraid People have died in this exact same spot. If the weather turns again, I don't know what I'm going to do. What do you think I should do? And she said something to me in that moment that, you know, forever changed my life. She's like, Colin, I've watched you train for this. I've watched you prepare. You are ready. People are going to summit Mount Everest tonight, and there is no reason you can't be one of them. You know, face your fears. I know you can do it. And it's an incredible testament to her strength. And again, I think it's an analog to my mother's strength in that Thai hospital. Both women who love me, both women who support me, both women who don't want to see me go out and hurt myself. But both of them in these really trying times didn't lean into their own fear. I called and I said, mom, I need you to come to Thailand. I've done something really stupid. And I called the Jenna and said, I'm afraid I'm on the side of the mountain. And instead of the natural reaction of both of them going, hey, come down the mountain or, hey, 
I'm in Thailand too, and I'm afraid, I'm scared. They both were able to show me the pathway towards that positive mindset, reminding me of what my goals are, or letting me, helping me to refocus. And so having those people, when things aren't going well in your life that love you, that support you, that care about you, that you can lean into with vulnerability, with fear, like, you know, maybe externally the, the narrative that was playing out, you know, out there, you know, at the time there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, actually millions via social media following my Everest expedition, you know, you don't want to let them down, but I'm like, you know, maybe in their eyes, some superhuman guy who's climbing Everest. So to get on the phone and call someone and be like, actually, I'm not superhuman. I'm afraid. Like I am scared right now, straight up and have somebody there for you that can take that phone call, but have the strength to push you back up again. And again, um, going on long here, but I, you know, I think that it's important because having that support system, like you said, to encourage you in the good times is amazing, but really having that support system that's strong, that can refocus you and get you back on track in the hard times is, is even more important. So what happened? How do you use that support system to finally make it to the top? You know, she encouraged me to uh, to get back out there. And, you know, sure enough, I uh, got back out there, you know, climbed to the top of Everest, which was amazing. And then, you know, one of the, the one of my favorite funny phone calls that certainly changed my life was coming back down off Everest, calling Jenna back up and telling her, hey, I made it. Thank you. You encouraged me this and that. I'm exhausted. I was two months ahead of the Explorers Grand Slam record at this time. So I had one more mountain left to climb Denali. And I'm thinking I'm going to get a little bit of a rest and this. And she goes, um... Yeah, a little change of plans. I know you're in your tent, um, but actually I need you to put your boots back on right now. I'm still at 26,000 feet coming up. Everest. She's like, I'm like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, well, um, uh, we've been doing some calculating back home and it just so happens if you can summit Denali, your final mountain in the next week, you'll set not one, but two world records. And I'm like, wait, in a week? Like I'm on, I'm just coming off Everest. Like I'm in, wait, hold on. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's it is. Put your boots back on, climb back down to base camp right now. I've arranged for a helicopter. A helicopter is going to take you to Kathmandu. There's no time to sleep overnight in a hotel or rest, take a shower. But an evening flight is going to take you to Dubai, to Seattle, to Anchorage. Um, and then you'll have about three days to climb Denali. Normally it takes three weeks. Um, ready, go. And keep in mind, I'm not just at the end of an Everest expedition, but I've done eight expeditions previously to this. I'm 130 days into this project at this point. Um, but the allure of setting a second world record, which was the Seven Summits world record, even though I had been going to the North and South Pole during this time as well, um, was, was, was more than I could, uh, uh, I, I couldn't push away the desire to do that. So sure enough, you know, we executed Jenna's plan and just a hundred hours after standing on the summit of Everest, I found myself in Alaska at the base of Denali, um, going up my final mountain. And then just three days after that, again, fighting through a massive storm on Denali, um, I reached the summit. So setting not just one, but two world records, uh, in the process, beating the seven summits by just a day. How did you have the, the strength to, to keep going in such a short amount of time to completely change your, your plan around? What, kind of what was going through your mind uh, when, when Jenna called me? I mean, it, it, was, it was crazy. Obviously, you're, you're, you're jacked up on adrenaline. Um, you're, you know, obviously, the momentum of the project, I was so close to the finish line. But I'm not really sure. Um, you know, again, you, you saw me public speak where I share uh, some videos and things, and there's some stuff online on my website. But, you know, when I share some of these videos, you look at look as I'm like it's a vacant stare in my eyes like I'm just worked um but I'm just like still continuing to going but I kind of had this mantra a couple a couple of mantras that I have one and one of of my favorite quotes is um uh, you know Henry Ford quote which is he who says he can and he who says he can't are usually both right um and so I kind of just kept saying like I can I can get on this plane I I can hike the next hour you know again breaking it up into these small incremental parts um and, you know, the other, the other mantra, you know, that I had was that, you know, kind of this too will change, meaning in those hard times, and, I, and this kind of comes from my meditation practice, but in those hard times, kind of the impermanence of them, like, yes, I'm exhausted right now. Yes, I'm worked right now. Yes, the wind is blowing super hard. Yes, I don't want to put my, you know, jeopardize my safety. And I, there was many times, like I said, where I did turn around at moments of this or wait out bad weather. It's not like I just always like went in the hardest conditions ever. Um, you know, obviously coming back with all my fingers on my toes safely was my number one priority. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was tough to keep going, but really those, those, those mantras, you know, he who says he can as, as well as, uh, you know, this too will change really kind of kept going. And also I kept telling myself, I was like, 
you know what? You want to set a world record, Colin. You think this is going to be easy to do something that no one else in the world has ever done, you know, faster than anyone's ever done? Like, this is not going to be easy. So every time it got hard, it was kind of like, you signed up for this. Like, this is supposed to be hard. And I have a smile on my face while I'm saying this because, you know, I'm a big believer. I'm, and I'm sure some of your podcast listeners in type two fun, right? Like, there was times where this sucked, but I also envisioned myself um, not necessarily sitting here in this room having this podcast interview with you, but sitting there being like, I'm proud that I've pushed through some really hard moments. You know, the goal wasn't to make it easy. If the goal was to make it easy, I wouldn't have set an an audacious goal and tried to climb all these mountains super fast and push my body super hard. So um, I like the creature comforts of life just like anybody else. I'm again, I'm not some like freak or some sadist that just loves to just get like beat on. Um, But I, you know, again, was, was just really motivated by this and the thing that is really important that, you know, I probably haven't talked enough about because it's really the really core thing here for me is that in the background of this campaign, um, this sort of this movement started to build even b- bigger than we kind of imagined with all of these school kids tuning in with, you know, kids across the country tuning in and following this along. And so I all of a sudden realized the platform that I had dreamed that I was going to build had been built. I actually had a microphone. I had a voice. And people were, I don't want to say depending on me, but looking up to me to finish this project. Um, And I wanted to be the inspiration for them. But what I realized, of course, is that that's, you know, I think of it as a wheel. It's like I set this goal like, oh, I want to inspire lots of people. Um, But at the end of the day, when I was tired, when I was exhausted, knowing they were out there, inspired me, knowing they were cheering me on, knowing their hopes and dreams would be that much more achievable if they could see somebody else achieve their own hopes and dreams. Um, And so it ended up being this kind of beautiful reciprocal um, inspiration circle or wheel, whatever you want to call it. You know, I wanted to inspire them, but they inspired me to keep pushing when it was hard because it wasn't just for me out there. It was for a greater purpose and a greater cause. If you could have had this microphone while you were on the mountain and told those people one thing about how their influence inspired you, what would it be? That's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, two things. One, just a a deep, you know, gratitude of of thanks. Um, But if they were asking, you know, what can I do to support you? It would be go do your thing. Go live your dream. Go climb your Mount Everest. That's what's going to keep inspiring me. Actually do the thing. Thank you for watching me. Thank you for holding this space for me. Thank you for supporting me. Now go do something extraordinary in your life, whatever that is, um, and, and, climb, and climb to that you know, uh, metaphoric mountaintop. It's one of the awesome things about what you're planning next that I love is that you're not just helping to inspire people to go out and do these things, but you're actually inviting people to come join along with you. So I'd love to learn more about the 50 HP challenge of what you're about to do and uh, how that's actually going to help people to come out and, and take that first step alongside you as you go out and set a new world record. How did the inception of this idea come? And just tell me a little bit more about what you're up to. Yeah, so the, the, the next iteration of all this, after coming back from this project and being proud, like I said, two years ago, um, kind of feeling like, you know, what, what do I want to do with this? I want to had amazing opportunities to share this story, you know, give a TED Talk, speak corporately, um, working on writing a book, you know, all these amazing things. But I, again, still, I still want to be out there. I still want to be moving my body. I still want to be out in the mountains or the outdoors um, and pursue, pursuing my passions. Um, but what I realized is it's really fun and, and even, you know, this interview, love talking about, you know, being on, being on Everest, and these epic stories of cold and extreme, you know, far off places. Places. But what I also realized is like, I want to do something that feels really accessible to people. Because I keep using this metaphor, like, do whatever it is in your backyard. Like, you know, take advantage of, you know, the outdoors, that wherever you are. And I was like, wait, why don't I do something that actually incorporates all of those things? And so my next goal when I'm actually leaving, I don't know when this will air, but um, I'm leaving in two weeks from today. It's uh, May 31st today. So um, I leave on June 13th. Hopefully this interview will be out soon. But I am aiming to set the world record for climbing the tallest mountain in each of the 50 U.S. states. Um, That starts again in Denali, so there's some fun uh, synchronicity of where my last world record ended. This one begins. Um, And it's a mad dash across the United States. The current record is 41 days. I actually think it can be done in in 30 days or less, but of course I'll be happy if it's 40. You know, I just get it by a day. Um, But the larger purpose with this project um, is something that I'm calling the Forrest Gump effect. 
And so, uh, as you mentioned, there is an open invitation for anybody to come out and climb any one of these mountains with me. So I'm going to be hitting every 50 states. So if, if you're an American audience listener anyways, I will be coming to a mountain near you this summer um, and everyone is invited. And what's amazing about this project for me is, of course, you get to some bigger challenging mountains when you get out west. Of course, Denali itself is, you know, a hugely epically challenging mountain. Um, but, you know, I'm sitting here in Georgia with you. You know, Brasstown Ball is an hour north of Atlanta, huge metropolitan area. And it's a, you know, it's an hour long day hike. Um, you know, come, come out there come hike that mountain with me or you know the tallest mountain in Florida is a 300 foot hill on the side of the road or even for some of these bigger more challenging mountains like maybe we don't all get to the top together but let's go hike the first few miles together like let's take a photo in the parking lot let's get outside let's celebrate public lands and the idea with this project is really this open invitation for people not only to think about their own goals to think about their own dreams but really to come out and participate and be a part of history be a part of this world record baking project and for me the success of this project of course looks like setting the world record but what it really looks like is using this world record as a catalyst for thousands of people across the country to come climb these mountains and we're doing a bunch of digital content and media and storytelling and I want to hear other people's stories who's the man or woman or child who's going to run through the night in North Dakota with me on the trails. Like that person's going to have an amazing story. We've already heard people chiming in with us via social media. You know, hey, I had this huge setback a year ago, but I'm going to be there with you in Kentucky. And like, this is going to be, you know, my moment that I feel like I've overcome that illness or that adversity or whatever that is. And so collecting those stories, ultimately, hopefully this ends up being really a tapestry of um, amazing stories across the United States from red states to blue states to urban communities to rural communities and really celebrating our public lands, the beautiful outdoor places, um, and the diversity of this amazing country. Your story is nothing short of an amazing testament in, or in terms of really the only thing that's holding you back is, is your own mind. Uh, there's nothing you can't do if you don't have the right mindset and determination to go out and do it. So for anyone out there who's listening that maybe has never hiked a single mountain before, what advice would you give to them to say that they can do this if they set their mind to it? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, um, please come out and join this with me. I got to give myself a little bit of a plug here, but at Colin O'Brady on Instagram or colinobrady.com slash 50HP is all the details and all the information. I'm sure we put that in the show notes. Um, but uh, seriously, open invitation, want to see people out there. And the your question about you know people who haven't hiked or climbed, you know, I... I actually um, carry with me every day in my pocket, it's in my backpack right now sitting on the floor, um, a small rock. And it's a rock from the summit of Mount Everest um, that I carry with me. And the reason I carry that rock with me is it's a reminder in my day, every day in my pocket, that even the biggest goals, even Mount Everest, even the biggest mountain in the world can be broken down to its smallest incremental parts, uh, a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, uh, many steps leading to the summit. And so when I think about giving advice to somebody who hasn't climbed either a physical mountain before or a metaphorical one, it's that same thing, which is start with the first step. And after that, who knows? But just drive to the trailhead and hike a half a mile. See how you feel. And maybe this time you don't get all the way to the top, but you did something. And the next time you have a little bit more strength, a little bit more confidence. It's, it's about, you know, setting those larger goals, but also going granular, going, what can I do today? What can I do tomorrow? Um, and so whether that, um, is like I said, an actual mountain or an, an actual athletic feat that you're going for, or whether that's whatever you're, you're daring to dream up in your own life. It's, you know, dare to dream greatly, but then ask yourself a simple question which lets you off the hook of, of failing or lets you off the hook of not achieving the grandiose thing that you dreamed up that's like written on your whiteboard or written on your mirror that you look at in the morning. It's like, what did I do today to help that? What's one little thing? You, there's, there's certainly something you can do. And sometimes that's the easiest thing in the world. You're like, I want to be, you know, more focused at my job, but I feel keep getting tired at two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, what's one thing you can do? I could sleep an extra hour tonight. I mean, that seems like silly, but all of a sudden, then you're no more focused the next day. And the next day, you're a little more focused and you get a little more sleep. Then like your little extra one hour of focus in the day leads to the next you know, breakthrough that you have. And so it's really those little tiny things like that rock in my pocket. So my encouragement would be, you know, you know take, take all of those little incremental steps and you have no idea where that's going to lead when you keep that positive mindset and that belief uh, in yourself. 
if you could kind of rewind your mindset all the way back to that decision right after graduating college to go travel around the world instead of getting that financial job that some of your friends were getting that they were saying you're you're crazy for doing this thing and not going to sign up for one of these big companies uh, if you could go back to to that kind of moment in your life and give yourself one piece of advice just from all the things you've experienced and all the things you've accomplished today what would that one piece of advice be still take the trip and still jump the rope i know that's a weird thing to say the the pain and trauma that i went through um in my process um i wouldn't wish on my worst enemy to be perfectly honest i mean it was it was so brutal um but i have learned so much through my successes but i've learned even more through my failures and i've learned the most from the times when I've taken risks, when I've stepped outside of my comfort zone, when I've got off the paved road of what everyone else, quote unquote, was doing. And I'm very happy with where I have ended up and where I continue to iterate. And it hasn't been easy. I have bad days all the time. Even pulling off this 50 high points project, even though I'm confident that I can pull it off, like I'm two weeks out and the last minute logistics and sponsorship and media plan and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a million things. There always are, right? That are swirling around, that are challenging. Um, but when we dare to step outside of our comfort zone, when we get our hands a little bit dirty, um, so I would say to that you know, 21-year-old kid embarking on this journey, embrace it. Say yes. I mean, that's a simple thing. Uh, I had this, uh, when I was traveling that time, uh, I didn't learn at the first, but I had this small mantra, which was say yes to things. So I would meet someone in a hostel or a youth hostel, and they would say, Oh, what are you doing tomorrow? I'd be like, oh, I don't have a huge plan. They're like, oh, well, we were going to get on this bus, this four-hour bus, like into this place and check out this random ruin of like whatever. And I'd think my initial thought in my mind, someone would be like, I'm tired or I, I don't actually know to see that site or whatever. I'd be like, okay, Colin, just say yes. Like you're here, like say yes. Explore the journey, open the doors, take the road less traveled, and you find yourself in some amazing places as a result. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Colin O'Berry, who, by the way, was actually the first person to ever take a Snapchat from the summit of Mount Everest, which actually attracted over 22 million views and garnered over 50 million social media impressions. So for anyone out there who is looking to do some grassroots social media campaign, looks like all you have to do is get to the top of Mount Everest.